When my friend Gary died, it was Lewis who contacted me. And what began as a simple look back at our shared past became an investigation and eventually morphed into this project. I interviewed friends and acquaintances, reread letters, researched the history of Newark and Weequig High School. But I knew that it would end up where it started, with a phone call to Lewis. And that's why I found myself in front of my recording booth with notes, photos, and questions pinned up inside, all in anticipation of talking to him on the phone. It had been at least 15 years since we had spoken at length, and I so wanted to feel a connection again. What was it about this relationship with Lewis that I had been working so hard to figure out? He was my first love, true, but it was also that we came together against the backdrop of a wild and unique time in history that would never come again, a time full of rapid change that challenged us to keep up and great pressure to join the movement, any movement, to act, that challenged us to step up, like a sign was always blinking, declare yourself, like Phil Oak singing, which side are you on? But even if there was great promise of creating a better world, we'd have to fight for it. We'd have to experiment, boldly reinvent ourselves, even when we weren't ready. But when you're 16, all things seem possible. And in 1967, the world reflected that, too. You don't remember that we met at maybe an SDS meeting? If we met at an SDS meeting, it would have been via Marshall's brother's recruiting of us. Because I was, I was in SDS in high school. I was recruited for SDS, and I remember sitting at a meeting. I remember more Tom Hayden being there, yep. sitting, sitting on the floor. Yep, I remember Tom Hayden being there, NCUP. So you remember that? Newark, so maybe we were at the same meeting. The Newark Community Union Project, or NCUP. And he, he was working for them, and he recruited. And then we, were, we went out and did some, like, door-to-door, trying to have dialogue with people about the war. What was your understanding? You were 16, 17, of what SDS was. Okay. Um, it was an organization of students who believed that the United States government was misguided at best and deceptively evil at worst and was carrying out activities in Vietnam and elsewhere in the world that were imperialistic and uh, counter to the values that a democracy is supposed to believe in. And the organization was formed to uh, protest and raise a voice against and have counter-dialogue and push for action to stop the war. And you felt drawn to that at such a young age. Why? I've been all my life, as far back as I can remember, interested in issues of justice, I guess attuned to the idea that there is injustice in the world. As far back as I can remember, I've been interested in race and um, racial prejudice, and I was growing up very formatively in the 50s. In '60s, during the, the 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 storm of the civil rights movement, you know, uh, I I was a little just speaking personally, if I'm honest, I I was a little intimidated by you and Marshall and some others who seemed 
like the real deal when it came to political activism. I felt like I joined SDS for the parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, because remember after an SDS meeting, we would go to Week Wake Park and walk around and stuff. I remember going to Week Wake Park and walking around, swinging on the swings and playing games and yeah. doing, doing things as teenagers that maybe younger children would have done, but we did it in an older way. And smoking dope. I remember all of that, but I don't remember that being connected to the SDS after party. No. I was ser- <laughs> the I was, SDS after party. I love the way yeah. you put that. Like I was serious Oscars about it. Party. I was I was serious about it, but it was also social. How did it happen that you wound up getting into a weatherman? The second year at Goddard, Marshall was accepted at Goddard. And so um, he came to Goddard a year after me. By the time of our third year, my third year, his second year, things had happened in the world, like the Democratic Convention in Chicago, which was all those people got bloodied by the cops and the whole world is watching, And if you remember. So then the weather people came up and they were trying to convince us to go with them to Chicago. I don't think any of the people that got it said, okay, I'll go with you to Chicago, but maybe one or two did. And things really got pretty violent in Chicago and... uh, so some people got really hurt, one of whom got shot. The person who got shot, I think you already know this, but um, had Marshall's ID on him because Marshall had given him his ID so he could keep his own identity secret if he got in trouble. So it broke on the news that Marshall had been shot in Chicago. So like we knew Marshall hadn't been shot in Chicago, but uh, people out in the world who knew Marshall thought he'd gone to Chicago and gotten himself shot. But here's the thing, you know, that lets you know how serious this was. So now we have a juxtaposition. So now I have a moral dilemma. My moral dilemma is, do I stay here in this safe hippie haven where, you know, you can talk smack all you want, but, you know, you're not doing what you're talking about? Or can you leave and go do it? And as much as I didn't really want to leave, I just could not. I felt like this moral imperative to put into action the things I'd been talking about when I saw other people were giving up their safety and giving up their uh, security and, and, and trying to be uh, authentic about what they were saying was important to them. I remember that in my high school yearbook, under my name it says, to be able to live with myself. That was serious to me. I, I, I was having trouble living with myself, being as protected and as sheltered as I was. And there was the peer pressure of, it wasn't just me, it was me, it was Marshall, it was my girlfriend, Jenny, it was his girlfriend. It was a guy named Michael, nicknamed Feather, and it was maybe one or two other people, plus Gary, who was hanging around and, and, and decided to go too. Um, and then there were other people in the same dorm, with the same political bent, with the same leftist attitude, who were ab- adamant about that's not the right way to go, and I'm not going to do this, and they did not go. So that was a schism. But the ones of us who left, we had to drop out of school. That was a big deal. You know, I had a scholarship. It was, it was a big deal. Plus, we were going to, like, go into a place where bad things could happen to us. But were you that's scared? Why, yes, I was scared. But that's why, that's why I did it. It's because it felt like I couldn't really live with myself the way the world was turning if all I did was stay in a safe place and talk about political action. And from conversations I've had with you before, uh, it was, (sighs) 
I, I can't. I don't know if I could use the word weatherman was disappointing, but it was. <laughs> no, that's not a word I would use. Yeah, can you can you talk about what it was like? You, you weren't in for very insane. long, you know. No, not for very long. It seemed like an eternity. Um, it was a bunch of crazy people. It was a bunch of crazy people who were all like kind of brainwashed and in their own way highly authoritarian in the way that the thing was structured and you weren't allowed to question the authority of the people who were in leadership and they were trying to strip you actually i think you know of identity and ego so that you could cleave to the group kind of like stuff that might have gone on in um under mao or under other regimes where one strong leader bends people to his will with the vision that this is for the good of all. And we had, we didn't have any fun, and we had a lot of hard physical things going on. And uh, they separated, you couldn't have monogamous relationships, so they separated all couples. It included me and my girlfriend being separated, Marshall and his girlfriend being separated. They, uh, they had criticism, self-criticism sessions, seemed like every night, where you'd sit in a circle and if you were the one who was up for being under discussion, uh, people would take turns criticizing how you were bourgeois and what you were doing wrong, and you were supposed to then um, be able to analyze and criticize yourself in the hopes that you would then, of course, be able to change and become a better revolutionary. Very unpleasant stuff. Wow, Lewis's story sounded familiar. It had so much in common with our friend Marshall's story of his time in Weatherman. They hadn't lived in the same house, but Marshall described how he, too, had found himself disillusioned and desperately seeking a way to get out. You couldn't just walk up to them and say, you know what, I think this isn't for me. I'm going to just, you know, have a nice life. And we're going to just take They would not let you leave. I think, I don't know what would have happened, but the sense was you weren't going to go out that door in one piece. So, um, how did you get out? Was it hard to get out? Yeah, there was this, t once I made the, they didn't let, you couldn't even have private conversations. I couldn't like talk to Ginny and say, how are you feeling about this? I'm feeling pretty terrible at this. And I don't think I want to stay here. And would you, you, you couldn't even do that. I mean, first of all, they put us in different houses. There were three houses, three collectives in Cambridge, and we were in different houses. But every once in a while, everybody would be together in one place. And so I don't really remember how I managed to communicate to her what I desired to do and how I desired to do it, and, and quickly got confirmation from her that she also wanted to go. Came up with a plan to escape. Basically, it was an escape. My sister was living, I think she actually was living in Waltham. She might have had an apartment in Waltham, which is where Brandeis is. And we were in Cambridge, so that's pretty close. Somehow or other, I managed to get a phone call to her. But I told her, I need your help. I need a place to stay. If I come to your place, would you put me up? Uh, you know, she agreed to do that. The way it physically occurred was that we were, at a, we were at what we call political action at MIT. We were at the campus of MIT. It was a staging area. And then we would go out in the street. There were marches going on, but we would be fomenting violence. See, the thing about Weatherman was they were trying to push the revolution, bring things to a head, so they would purposely engage in activities, illegal and violent activities, for the end of radicalizing the situation so that people could see clearly what the oppressor was about and, and try to push working class people into joining the movement, which was primarily made up of middle class, upper middle class students, white collar folks, and the sons and daughters of white collar folks, not a lot of blue collar folks. So they were trying because they wanted the proletariat, 
right? Anyway, so we would go out and do these wild, crazy, illegal, dangerous things to cause trouble. And so at this political action at MIT, I remember we were told we had to throw stones at the cops. Now, I didn't really particularly want to throw stones at the cops. There's something about that that's the theme right to me. Um, but I wound up doing a little bit of that, and I remember doing that. And then I remember they charging us, and I remember the adrenaline of running from them. And then we restaged at MIT, and that's when I, I said I had to go to the bathroom, and I went to the bathroom in one of the, you know, like student center, student union, and Ginny did the same thing. And then we wound up going outside and finding each other outside, and then we just kept walking. We just walked away, walked to a subway station, got on a subway, and went to Waltham. My sister put us up for a day or two, and then she kicked me out. Then I called my father in New Jersey. He came, and he rescued us. It was striking to think that three of my closest Newark friends, Marshall, Lewis, and Gary, had gone this route. And although my friend Barbara was pressured by Lewis and Marshall to go with them to join their collective in Cambridge, she was totally turned off and chose not to go. Gary was there in the apartment with Barbara that day, and he did go with Lewis and Marshall. But I suspect it was mostly out of loyalty to his friends. It is really hard for me to think of Gary as a revolutionary. He was such a gentle soul. But then I'm not sure that any of them knew what they were getting into. And they all did leave Weatherman eventually. Good timing, too. Because after they left, a splinter group of Weatherman took a darker and more violent path. In 1970, a bomb they were constructing exploded, destroying a West Village townhouse and killing three of the members. The survivors went into hiding, and they became known as the Weather Underground. As my conversation with Lewis continued, we turned to our first intimate encounter. So let's go back... Uh, down the rabbit hole to when, you know, so you ran into me on a street in Newark. Um, in August of 1967, I was walking uh, down Bergen Street, um, maybe coming out of the bank where I was working. And this is this is just like coming to me now. I think I bumped into you. I don't know if you, do you remember that? And no, um, uh, Sort of, no, maybe. We knew each other well enough to stop and say hello to each other. And then there was some chatter about, a party, I believe maybe that night or maybe the next night, the conversation of some kind of a party or some, some indication was that there was going to be a party. It was either the next night or that night or something. I know that was on a Friday night that we went there. And I found out you were going. There were, you gave me to understand you would be there. And for some reason, which I cannot tell you why, that was of great interest to me at that time. Well, that's nice to hear. Oh, okay. What do you <laughs> I mean? Just, oh, okay. Well, I mean, like, is I, it, I think what... I, it's so absurd to me um, as a woman of my age now that that's still nice to hear. Well, I mean, I guess it's like just a phenomenon of human nature. So what happened at the party? My version of events is um, one thing I remember is taking acid. And 
losing some track of time. Uh, it wasn't the first time I'd done it, but I wasn't like a regular user of it. It was like maybe the third time I'd done it. It was very, it was a pleasant enough experience, but somewhere in there, my father called and told me my mother wanted me to come home. And I told him, no, she didn't. She wouldn't want to see me the way I was right now, and I'll be home when I can get there. I remember that. And then I remember like people getting up and leaving as the time went on and the party got into the later parts of the night or even the early morning. People peeled away and left, went home, wherever they went. So there was only like three or four people left. Me, you, Steve, who lived there, and maybe a couple other people. But I couldn't tell you who they were. But And then there was this thing about... Um, I don't remember talking to you. I don't remember spending time with you during the actual party, but I'm pretty sure I must have. And then it was like, if we figured it, we all kind of figured out that the people that were still there were going to stay there. We're going to spend the night there. We're going to sleep there. And then there was the sleeping arrangements had to be made. Um, and you went upstairs where there was beds and bedrooms. And there was at me and probably one other person or maybe two other people, male people, one of whom was going to share a bed with you. T -t Trust me, I don't remember any of these details. I just kind of know that that must have been what happened. And then it got decided that it would be me. And I'm not sure how it got decided that it would be me, but in conversations that I've had with you, I guess you decided it. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, well. yeah. I'm sure of that. And then we can add the confirmation of our witness and friend, Eben. He observed all this very keenly and, you know, claims that, and as he put it, I went up to the sort of parental bedroom. I'm 16. And, you know, I say something like, you know, okay, bring me Lewis or something. If you say so. All I know is I was very happy that I was chosen. Happy and scared. Happy and scared, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I was scared because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know if there was an expectation of me to do something with you sexually that I wasn't, I was a virgin and I didn't know if you had an expectation of me. I didn't know um, if I had an expectation of me. It was, it was exciting, but intimidating all at once. And remember, I'm still like coming down from a high, like a serious high. You know, uh, how come I didn't know that you were tripping? Probably didn't share that of... with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I was. Hmm. At least it, I have a few. I, see, my sense of it is that we were at this party for more than a day. That it started wow. and maybe like on a Friday night and that this event of, of you and me was like maybe the next night because maybe like, but then again, um, being that I was uh, under yeah. the effects and my sense of time was distorted, I could be wrong about that. But it feels like it was a very long time we spent hanging around before, and that um, maybe that would explain why other people left. I don't know. And, and so we... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we got in bed and, like, stuff happened. And... Yeah, we got in bed and, like, stuff happened. <laughs> it was very exciting. It was my first real intimate encounter with a female person beyond kissing someone where our bodies were that connected. Uh, we, I kept my underwear on. I remember that. And you kept something on. So it wasn't like we were naked. But there was a lot of physical activity. And then when I went to do more than I was doing, you stopped me. And I was 
both uh, a little frustrated but respectful and kind of glad that you did because I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. <laughs> I also I also remember thinking about birth control and that there wasn't any and that might be a problem. And then I remember like thinking I really liked you and this was really nice. And then in the morning, I remember thinking about how it felt very grown up to be there together in this big bed where grownups lived. Felt very grown up. And I was smitten. I was definitely smitten at that point. So that that night was pretty powerful, clearly. And then people say that you kind of bounded down the stairs like with a victory sign, you know, as if, you know, mission accomplished. This, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have any memory of that. I, I... Yeah, and by the way, I don't have any memory of actually being in that bed. I kind of wish Oh, I that's did. great. You know, I'm there... glad to hear I already made such an impression <laughs> As difficult as it was, as embarrassing as it was, to hear the details of my behavior at that party, I had to remind myself that this was what I was after in doing this project. What Eben had detailed in our phone conversation was true. Lewis had now confirmed it, and I learned more things I'd forgotten about that night. When Eben first spoke of it, it felt like something that happened to someone else altogether. But when Lewis brought the details of what went on in that room with us, I began to feel more connected to that girl and to that time. The remaining questions I had for Lewis would take us from the party to the 10 days we spent together later that summer, and there's more of my conversation with him still to come. Ten Days in Newark is produced by Scott Shapley and me. I'm Benny Klein. For more information, 10daysinnewark.com.